We believe that you are strong by design, and you were made in God's image to have a strong body, mind, and spirit. You're listening to the number one strength and health authority podcast in the world. So let's get ready to unlock your potential and transform your life in today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the Strong by Design podcast show. I am your host today, Coach Tanya, and I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Christy Harrison. And if you haven't heard of her, um, well, you're going to hear of her today, and you are going to be equally as impressed as I am with this young woman and what she's doing as far as health, nutrition, and wellness for people. Um, Christy, welcome to the show. Hi, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm really, really excited to have you on. Um, just a little brief history here. Christy is actually an anti-diet registered dietitian, and that's what really jumped out at me. Um, so when I, when I saw this, I can't remember how it popped up, but I saw this and I'm like, I need to find out who this woman is and found her podcast. Um, she has a podcast, Food Psych. She is the author of Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness um, Through Intuitive Eating. And Christy specializes in helping people make peace with food and reclaim time and energy that they've lost to the life thief that is diet culture. And we're going to talk all about that today. She offers online courses, private and intuitive eating coaching. Um, she did launch her podcast show, Food Psych, in 2013, which is now one of Apple's top 100 health podcasts. So congratulations on that, Christy. And again, welcome. And what can you just give us a, you know, give us a little intro to yourself. Yeah, so I mean that bio is great. You, you touched on a lot of the the main points, um, but yeah, as, as you said, I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian. Certainly didn't start out that way. Didn't start out intending to be anti-diet. In fact, I was very pro-diet when I went back to school to become a dietitian. My first career and you know continued other, second career. I never really left it. Is uh, being a journalist, and I started my journalism career in 2003 when I had a, an eating disorder, undiagnosed eating disorder, but was very disordered with food, had gone on a diet my junior year of college to try to lose a little bit of weight I had gained. And, you know, it was off to the races with disordered eating, restricting and binging and over-exercising and mm. all of the things, right? I, I identified yeah. as an emotional eater. I thought I couldn't control myself around food. I thought I was addicted to bread and carbs. And so it was from that place that I started my journalism career. And of course, being obsessed with food as I was and obsessed with health and weight loss and nutrition, those were my focuses with food. And I was also had had this longstanding interest in the environment and sort of a political person always. And so I, I went into specifically like food politics reporting and worked on, you know, sustainable reporting on sustainable agriculture and was sort of fashioning myself after Michael Pollan, if anyone knows. Okay. Him. So, yes. Yes, wow. absolutely. Very familiar that's, with him. That's where I started out. Um, and so, you know, I did that full time for six or seven years. The magazine I was working for eventually closed. It was gourmet, rest in peace. Um, mm. And at that point, I, you know, I sort of heard the rumblings that it was something was going to happen with the magazine. And I decided to go back to school to become a dietitian just to have kind of a second career in my back pocket because journalism wasn't feeling super safe at that point. Right. Um, and so that's kind of how I, you know, got into the field of dietetics was from this very 
um, disordered place. You know, through the course of my career writing and reporting about food, I did start to recover. You know, I had some, mm-hmm. a lot of experiences that I think kind of were uh, de facto exposure therapy to help me make peace with food in small ways, but I was still struggling. I was still wanting to lose weight, restricting and binging somewhat. Um, by the time I went back to school, I did have a good therapist who was really essential in that recovery process. Um, but what happened was when I got to school, I, I was actually starting to work on a book proposal for a book that never, I never wrote, although 10 years later I wrote Anti-Diet and it kind of drew from some of the early ideas for this first book and mm-hmm. um, was working on this, this book about the cultural history of emotional eating because I still identified as an emotional eater at the time and I was... Right curious kind of where this concept of emotional eating came from. Like, is this a particularly American thing or Western thing, a modern thing? And, you know, I was doing all this research on so-called emotional eating. And I came across the book Intuitive Eating in my research. Mm -hmm. And that really shifted things for me. That was huge. Even just seeing the title, I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of what I did growing up. You know, mm-hmm. I was I was fortunate. I had the, you know, the privilege, we call it thin privilege in, in right. my field of, you know, not having been told to lose weight, not never having been shamed for my body size, you know, never being teased in any sort of concerted way for the size and shape of my body, always being able to find clothes that fit and fit into airplane seats and theater seats and all that. So I was like, you know, had the thin privilege. No one bothered me about food and my family had enough to eat. That's another huge piece of privilege. So from the time I was, you know, born until age 20, I was able to be an intuitive eater. And then, you know, when I turned 20 and started my diet that, you know, unraveled things for a good, you know, five, really about a decade. Um, But I, you know, when I discovered the book Intuitive Eating, I think it was the first step towards recovery. And so, that really stuck with me. You know, that that helped me in my own personal recovery. And I wasn't implementing it yet with the clients that I was working with in my nascent dietetics career, but I was, you know, seeing sort of the cognitive dissonance, if you will, of having clients come to me for weight loss and seeing them engaging in things and behaviors and thoughts that I engaged in at my, my most disordered and felt like there's something not right here. You know, this is, this seems a little off to me. And those were the first seeds. And then eventually I started specializing in disordered eating and realized that intuitive eating is kind of the gold standard. It's what we're aiming for with clients in recovery. It's kind of like where you get to when you're in solid recovery from an eating disorder. And so that really changed the the course of my career, I would say. Yeah. I And um, just listening to what you have said, I think a lot of what you're saying is going to resonate with a lot of people listening, both women and men. I don't think that, you know, issues with eating or relationships with food is strictly a female problem. I think there's also men that have, you know, uh, disordered eating and um, unhealthy relationships with food. So I, I really do feel like what you're saying, a lot of people listening to this are gonna be shaking their head and going, yep, uh-huh, been there, tried this, tried that. Our team would like to thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. And if you're enjoying today's show, please share this episode with at least one friend or family member who will benefit from this message. And please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Go to strongbydesignpodcast.com. That's strongbydesignpodcast.com. 
Let's get back to the show. And I like how you talk about it as being a process of recovery. So talk, if you would, a little bit about how when you talk about it as part of the recovery process, what can people, like, what are they recovering from? I mean, are we talking, because I've always maintained, or my belief is that most of us know what healthy eating is. Like, we have a general good idea, but somewhere there's this relationship with food that got really messed up. And there's a huge psychological, emotional element that is creating this block or this, um, you know, creating this uh, condition, I guess, where we find ourselves or people find themselves in a situation where they have an unhealthy relationship with food. It becomes this reward punishment system and their eating does become disordered. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's really true that I think at the fundamental level, a lot of people know what feels good and what what right. is, you know, quote unquote, healthy eating. Even that term can be sort of loaded in this culture. Right. Um, and I think the problem is, you know, the thing that gets in the way of that intuitive relationship with food, which really we're all born with. And, you know, right. I talked in my own story about this sort of example of like birth till age 20, no interference in my relationship with food, had plenty of food, had a positive sort of role modeling around food, to, you know, more or less, right? There was definitely some dieting in my family, but, you know, enough positive role modeling that I was able to keep that intuitive relationship with food. I think where so many of us get waylaid from that intuitive relationship with food, oftentimes much younger than I did, is diet culture, right? The system of, you know, how I define diet culture is a system of beliefs that worships thinness and equates Mm. it to health and moral virtue, Mm -hmm. promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status. So, you know, health status, moral status, social status, right? All of those things. Demonizes some foods while elevating others. Yes. And oppresses people who don't match its supposed picture of health. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you can really see from that definition that so many vastly different things that, you know, might not call themselves diets anymore, right? Their lifestyles, their plans, their programs, their templates, their protocols, like they don't want to identify as diets. And yet they all fit under this umbrella of diet culture and they all do real harm. Right. And so I think it's, you know, it's diet culture. It's all these forms of diet culture that interfere in people's relationship with food and, and take them in this really disordered direction so that they don't know which way is up, right? So that they think, exactly. you know, oh my God, I can't like control myself around this food that, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, you were just fine with. And uh-huh. then suddenly you have this restriction on it and now you feel out of control around it. And oftentimes that doesn't occur to us, right? Like I know for myself when I was in the low carb dieting phase of my disordered eating, which kind of never really went away, right? Low carb has been around since the early 2000s. And so, you know, that was a part of my disordered eating for most of it. But, you know, when I was first trying to restrict carbohydrates, I was like, well, I just, I'm just a monster. I can't control myself around (laughs) bread. It's just, it's just, I'm just so weird, you know? Yeah. Meanwhile, not realizing I had 20 years of having bread every day and like it was no thing, you know? Right. So, it's, I think, I think this, you know, diet culture and sort of the way that particular diets layer their rules on top of other rules in our brains so that, mm-hmm. you know, we think, oh my gosh, now I'm not supposed to have carbs. Oh, but I'm supposed to do the Michael Pollan, like not too much, mostly plants thing. So there's that. And then I'm going to layer on like um, paleo ideas. And then there's going to be this, you know, vegetarianism thrown at, you know, we just like accumulate all these rules and all these ideas from different diets, different forms of diet culture. And suddenly we're just so confused and we don't know which way to turn. 
Absolutely. And our body's completely confused as well. And when I'm you know, looking at your site, which is, I love your site, by the way, which will, um, towards the end of, of our discussion, we'll definitely tell people, I'll have you tell people where they can go and find you and all of your great stuff. But I loved reading this, um, just what you said, you know, the culprit is diet culture, a system of beliefs that equates thinness to health and moral virtue, promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, and demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others. It's sexist, racist, and classist. I love that. I mean, I love that. And I think, again, a lot of people are going to be shaking their head and going, yeah, and at the same time asking, but how did we get here? Like, how is a society, did we get here? And do you think we can ever reverse or heal this mindset that exists in our culture? That's such a good question. I mean, the story of how we got here is like, it could <laughs> it's fill long. a whole book and has in fact filled many whole books that I referenced yeah. for my book. And I mm-hmm. had a, a very long history chapter in it that I ended up breaking up into two chapters that were still rel- relatively long. And, you know, I just find this stuff so fascinating mm. of sort of how we got here because- it really is, you know, it has its roots in racism, mm-hmm. sexism, and classism. There's the, you know, element of racism where um, Sabrina Strings wrote this great book, Fearing the Black Body, that I think is, you know, the sort of preeminent piece of scholarship on this idea of how black, anti-blackness, anti-black racism paved the way for fat phobia because right. there was sort of this effort to justify anti-black racism and sort of looking for ways that um, to, you know, ways to argue that black people were less than, that black people were subhuman, right? Less evolved, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. This was in the, you know, 1700s to mid 1800s. These ideas were sort of coming on, on, you know, onto the scene, but especially in the 1800s with the advent of evolutionary biology, I think it kicked up a notch to where there's this real argument that, you know, Black people and other people of color, quote unquote, less evolved, like horribly racist, right? That's just yeah. the worst. And, you know, looking at uh, this is where like phrenology comes from and this idea of like looking at the size and shape of people's heads to determine things about their psychology. Right. And there was, you know, measuring people's bodies as well to try to tell you something about them. And so from that came this idea that, you know, black people are more likely to be larger bodied and therefore larger body size is bad. Women are more likely to be larger bodied and therefore larger body size is bad because, of course, there was this, you know, misogyny that was still going on, right? It was patriarchal ideas about about bodies and about gender um, that said, you know, women are always a step down from men. Right. And of course, right. it's a very gender binary way of seeing too. Right. Um, and so, you know, it, this, this fat phobia, this anti-fatness was really born out of racism and sexism. And then you have this piece too of like the food phobia, right? Because we've got right. the fat phobia over here. Then there's the food phobia, which I think is kind of the other main piece of the root system of diet culture. And they're very intertwined. And of course, you know, food phobia feeds into fat phobia because it's mm-hmm. like, you know, don't eat certain foods because they'll make you fat. But then there's also this other strain of like eating or not eating certain foods to make you quote unquote pure. And ah, that really yes. comes from this like religious idea, these religious ideas, these puritanical um, sort of early Presbyterian religious ideas about which foods were good and bad and, you know, sort of uh, demonizing over quote unquote overconsumption and demonizes it. This this guy Sylvester Graham was sort of a leader in this um, in this way. He was, you know, one of the fathers of modern diet culture. I would argue, mm-hmm. and 
um, he, you know, he had all this huge list of foods that he cut out because they were too, quote unquote, stimulating. And he saw, quote unquote, overstimulation as kind of the scourge of the, of the time, you know. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, there's all these ways in which like cutting out foods and demonizing certain foods and elevating others has this real religious component to it. And for Sylvester Graham, it was about like keeping people from having too much sex, keeping people from mm. masturbating. Like these, these foods were, you know, ketchup and condiments were like supposedly um, gateways into sin, right? Mm. So yeah. that's kind of where diet culture comes from. It's like this confluence of, of those root system, you know, of, of those roots into this sort of gigantic root system in the, you know, mid to late 1800s right. that brought us then diets for weight loss, which by the way, weight loss diets weren't recommended by doctors. In fact, they were recommended against by doctors yeah. up until the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. It was seen that being larger bodied was actually protective. Gaining weight with age was seen as a good thing. It was you know, a normal part of the aging process and it helped you stay healthy into, into older age. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, when people, this cultural fat phobia started to take over, people were going to the doctor asking for weight loss diets. And the doctors were like, what are you talking about? Like, this is, you know, vanity. This is mere vanity taking me away from actually helping you with your health. Like, tell me what you really want to work on. Thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. This episode is brought to you by FirmAndTight.com. Get flat abs, lean legs, and a firm butt without ever lifting another clunky heavyweight at the gym again. Visit FirmAndTight.com to sculpt your entire body with 10-minute miniband workouts. That's FirmAndTight.com. Eventually, kind of like any business, right? They're getting this increased demand for weight loss diets. They're also getting pressure from the burgeoning insurance industry, which is, right. you know, trying to put pressure on people to doctors to weigh people and, you know, coming out with these tables of supposed risk in larger bodies in their population, by the way, of just like wealthy older white men. So I don't know what that really tells you about, you know, the whole population. Mm -hmm. um, but they were, you know, doctors were getting this increasing pressure. And so, you know, eventually around the turn of the 20th century, they caved and they started offering weight loss diets and it kind of went from there. And then you start to get around the 1920s, like actual scientific research that, you know, supposedly shows being a larger, being larger bodied is a risk. But, you know, that didn't exist until there was already this pre-existing fat phobia and food right. phobia pushing people in that direction. So you really have to think like we, you know, it's sort of a cultural inheritance that we get that's like, oh, being fat is unhealthy, right? That's how we're, that's how we're all born, you know, it's how we're all conditioned to think. And yet it, that didn't, that belief system didn't exist until the early 1900s. Like that idea of fatness being bad for health just wasn't a thing. So right. it's you know, been a and, long time in the making and the perfection of the mindset and the, the culture of it. And as for your question about like, how do we get out of it or can we see a way out? I mean, I think, you know, in terms of history, this is actually a pretty short time period, right? It's, you know, 150, 200 years, like it's not nothing, right? It's a couple generations, you know, several generations, right? But mm -hmm. it is, I think work outable. You know, we, we can we can untangle this. I think it's just gonna take probably the work of many generations, honestly. And, you know, 
a generation before yeah. me started this in the 1960s and 70s. And now my generation's kind of picking this up and probably my kids are going to keep having to work on this, you know, but I think eventually we can untangle ourselves. I think the the key is, you know, first awareness and then right. helping people see alternatives, giving yes. people support, you know, undoing this weight stigma, this fat phobia that is so toxic to people's health. And that's like a whole other topic yeah. that we could get into of how harmful weight stigma is in and of itself to well-being. Right. And re reframing what health looks like because there mm -hmm. isn't a sort of a one-size-fits-all um, model for that. Yeah. You know, um, bodies come in all shapes and sizes and definitely there's, you know, there is health and there is ill health, but there isn't um, this perfect molded uh, frame of what that looks like for every single person. Um, I did want to ask you, um, because I've, I've had some people at, when I was talking, I talked to friends and family about, you know, I'm having Christy Harrison on the podcast and people ask me, well, who is that and what does she do and telling them about you. A lot, of, um, a lot of them wanted to know, okay, so intuitive eating versus emotional eating. Are they the same? Are they different? Is it possible for someone who is an emotional eater to have success with intuitive eating? Yeah, great question. I mean, so I think they are distinct concepts, and you know, intuitive eating, like I said, is really the way we're all born, knowing how to eat. It's this easy, flexible, instinctual relationship with food that we mm -hmm. all have from birth, and that we can, you know, we do have the capacity to get back to again. Um, it may be more difficult and take longer for people who've been in diet culture longer or for people who've been food insecure, who've had their relationship with food harmed that way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, intuitive eating is our birthright and it is something that we all have the capacity to, to get back to with enough time, practice, and support. And of course, that's going to look different for everyone, right? Exactly. Um, you know, emotional eating is this, you know, as I found in my research for that book, you know, 12 years ago, and then again, more recently when I'm researching my latest book and beyond, you know, emotional eating really isn't um, what people think it is, right? So we can feel like emotional eaters. I fully identified as an emotional eater. I thought, you know, I eat my feelings. I, when I'm sad or anxious or angry, I can't control myself around food. You know, if I'm even keel and I'm feeling good, it's fine. I can like, you know, now I, I look back on it and I see, oh, I can restrict, right? That's what I was trying to do. It's, you know, I could be restrictive with my food when I wasn't feeling upset. Mm -hmm. um, but then the minute, you know, emotions got heightened, it was like all bets were off. I, you know, felt like I lost my willpower. Yeah. Now I see, and, and the research really shows that it's really not the case that we're eating our feelings or losing control around, you know, losing control with food because of something wrong with us, because there's, uh, like we have some, you know, toxic relationship with food that is sui generis. Actually, the the origin of that feeling of being out of control with food and of eating our feelings is restriction, is deprivation. Mm -hmm. So when people are deprived, when they're not eating enough, and, you know, diet culture tells us that a laughably small amount of food is enough. So you have to kind of take that into consideration because right. a lot of the clients I see will come in and they'll be like, I'm not restricting, but I'm still binging or I'm still eating emotionally. I don't understand it. And then we actually dig into what they're eating. And it's like, oh, I do see that I'm still restricting. Like yeah. it just, it takes a lot of, you know, one of my clients has likened it to like peeling an onion, right? You're just peeling back the layers. You think you've gotten to the center and then you're like, oh, nope, there's another one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, with emotional eating, I think it's like that, right? Where 
you can be restricting at a subtle level and an unconscious level or even at a conscious level. You know, you're dieting, you know you're eating less than what you're hungry for. But I see a lot of it as, you know, a lot of the time people are unconscious of it. And that restriction is driving you towards food. Oftentimes, you know, your, your quote unquote willpower can like win out for a time. But mm-hmm. anything that comes along that depletes that willpower, like emotions, makes you reach for the food because the food is necessary, right? right. Have it, eating in response to that degree of deprivation keeps us alive. It helps us survive. It's why we're here as a species, you know, we yeah. would have died out long ago right? if it weren't for that mechanism that makes us, you know, feel out of control with food and feel like we can't stop eating when we're deprived. So that's actually your body taking care of you. Mm-hmm. And so what I've found is that, you know, emotional eating really tends to dissipate or even completely disappear when people heal their relationships with food and stop restricting, right? It's stopping the restriction has to happen first. Mm -hmm. You can't clamp down on the emotional eating and expect it to go away. You have to start at the root, which is the restriction. And that can be hard for a lot of people in diet culture because giving up the restriction, giving up the dieting feels really difficult. There's a lot of, you know, pressure on it. There's a lot of weight stigma out there that keeps people feeling like they need to restrict. Mm, and so I get control. that that's, Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like they, you know, the, exactly. They have to restrict in order to have control over the size and shape of their bodies and therefore have control over their lives. Right. right? That's what diet culture tells us. Yeah. And so, you know, feel, giving up that control, giving up the restrictive eating can take a lot of doing and can take a lot of support and practice. But I think the first step is sort of just knowing if you identify as an emotional eater, there is restriction going on. That's what's driving it. Mm-hmm. You, when you heal the restriction, if you can, you know, go through the process, ideally with one-on-one support from, a, you know, an anti-diet dietitian or intuitive eating coach or therapist um, who specializes in this kind of stuff, right, and, and is right. anti-diet. Um, yeah. But, you know, not everyone has the capacity, the, the funding for that. So, you know, finding self-help or whatever else you need to do is, is totally an option too. But, you know, going through that process of letting go of the restriction, once you do that, most people, I would say, you know, the vast majority of people that I've worked with have found they stop, either completely stop eating emotionally, having these self-identified emotional eating episodes, mm-hmm. or they're dramatically reduced. And then we continue to work on, okay, where's like the hidden forms of restriction, the subtle restriction, often that reduces it completely. And for the, you know, small percentage of people for whom there is continued emotional eating, continued kind of self-described emotional eating after the restriction has been healed for a long enough time, then we can start to look at, okay, what are some other ways that food has become a coping mechanism for you and has like maybe substituted for other coping mechanisms that now you can expand your toolbox and you can, you know, start learning other coping skills too. A colleague and mentor of mine, Judith Matz, has said, she's a fellow anti-diet dietitian, she's very much in favor of, you know, stopping the restriction first, like starting with that because you can't, you can't do, you can't address emotional eating and say like, oh, I need to, you know, take a walk instead of eating or call a friend instead of eating. That's not going to work unless you are in a situation of adequate food. 
right? Unless you have enough. Mm -hmm. Your body needs to truly trust that you have enough and that you will continue to have enough, that you're not going to be deprived again. And that's not just, you know, a week of saying, okay, I can eat whatever I want because in the back of your mind, you know, at the end of that week, what's going to happen, right? It's likely more restriction. And so your body doesn't really get a chance to feel safe. It has to be a lot more sort of consistent letting go and permission for your body to truly feel safe. Thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. To help our show reach more listeners just like you, please let us know how we've changed your life by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Go to strongbydesignpodcast.com. That's strongbydesignpodcast.com. Let's get back to the show. This is the kind of help that you can, this is the kind of help and support that you give to people. This is the kind of work that you do. Um, so why don't you tell us, tell all of our listeners where they need to go so they can find you. So like your, your website, um, your, uh, as well as your podcast, um, your books, tell, give them all the goods so that they can, you know, because I know there's going to be a lot of people out there thinking, I, this, is, this is my story. This is my story. And these are the things that I really need the help with that the, you know, diet culture today is in no way supporting. It's, it's only, it's feeding this, this fury inside, you know, it's, it's feeding um, a dis-ease. Um, so I think there's a lot of people that are going to want to reach out. So where can everybody find you? Yeah, well, thank you so much. And, um, you know, just want to say to everyone out there who is resonating with this, like, you're not alone. And uh, there is help. There is support, you know, so I think a good place to start is my podcast food psych You can find it wherever you're listening to this podcast or you can go to my website chrissyharrison.com um, You'll find links to the podcast there. You'll also find links to my book I think that's another good place to start if you're someone, you know, depends on the type of learner you are the kind of materials you want to have But I think the book is good for like something you can refer back to that you can bookmark that you can highlight that you can keep as like a resource to have with you when you you're struggling or just needing a boost of anti-diet information. Um, and so that's there on my website as well. ChristyHarrison.com slash book is the direct link. Um, and then I do have an online course, uh, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals, right. where I teach people about, you know, really in-depth the principles of intuitive eating and basically how not to turn intuitive eating into a diet because mm -hmm. that is, you know, a very common thing that I see when people are yes. learning intuitive eating for the first time. Labeling it again um, right away. Yep. You know, this need to label, to label it, to whether that gives certainty or it provides a sense of it's a real thing, like it's something valid and accredited. Um, mm -hmm. But I hate that word. I mean, diet is everything that we eat. I, like, and if, if all you eat is cheeseburgers, well, that's just your diet. But there's this desperate need in the culture to give a really lovely wonderful name to a certain way of eating to elicit this is the way to do it. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting too. I have a thing about the etymology of the word diet in my book and actually traced it back because I was like, what, what's up with this word? Like, does this word, because, you know, it's often said in the, in the dictionary to be like, uh, the origin is the way of life or a, a way of life, right? And it's like, okay, well, did it start out that way? Is it actually really just about a way of living or is it specific to food and sort of regimented rules? And when you actually look at the ancient Greek root of the word dieta, um, it's it, the word dieta was actually used in this very prescriptive 
diety sense. Like it was basically this regime from the beginning. It was like, here's how you have to eat. Here's how you have to bathe. Here's how you have to have sex. Here's how you have to, Mm -hmm. you know, what you have to eat when you're sick versus when you're not sick. It's very prescriptive. It's very much in line with sort of the diets that we have today. And so I think this mistranslation of the term as like, oh, it's a way of life. It's just how, you know, it's just whatever is actually sort of mistaken because the the real sort of root of it is this, you know, it's a diet, right? From the, right. from the very right. go, right? Um, and so, really, what I like to say instead of like, "Oh, your 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 usual diet, your regular diet," is like your menu, right? What you yeah. eat, you know, yeah. What's exactly. on the menu, rather yeah. than kind of because I think also I think people have this really um, negative connotation with the word diet, which is probably why so many diets these days don't want to call themselves diets because mm-hmm. everybody's moving away from the word diet, right. not you know have this sort of cultural PTSD from yeah. the term diet, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. I think it's, it's exactly. very real. Exactly. So we are working to reframe the culture and you're definitely one of the leaders in that. And I have mad respect for what you're doing. I think it's much needed. And I've talked for years about how our relationships with food um, are just, you know, are a result of this diet culture that's really, really unhealthy. And it's putting all these really insane visuals and um, intentions out there that are just ridiculous. So I love what you're doing. Um, just again, please repeat for our listeners your URL, like your website, um, so they know where to sure. go find you. Yeah, so you can find me at christyharrison.com. Christy is spelled C-H-R-I-S-T-Y. Harrison, like George, two R's, one S. Um, And yeah, everything's there. And we will also put that in the show description. And also, I'm going to add in the show description, there's a link, strongbydesigncravings.com. And it's just a free cravings report that we have created as well, just some tools and resources just to help with, you know, um, like, you know, you talk about things like restrictions and people, you know, this deprivation. But I mean, we all get cravings um, for things for different reasons. And there's a healthy way to manage them um, without feeling guilty or the shame. So I'm going to put that link also in the show description for people to take a look at. Christy, it was an absolute pleasure um, having you on the show. I do want to have you back again. Um, Happy to come back anytime. Yeah, because there's, there. I mean, this is such a huge topic. And I'd actually like to bring you back and a couple times and break it down talking into specifics, like specific audiences. Like I'd like to really discuss the whole, you know, issue with teens and then, you know, um, older women and, you know, even with men, because I think each one of those, I think the entire topic itself as a broad umbrella topic is massively important. And I think under that umbrella, there's these sort of, um, we'll call them audiences or specific groups, age groups, categories that are dealing with their own stuff in, in terms of life and transitions that, also play a role in this. And um, I think it's important to discuss it. I think it's really important to get the information out there. And what you are doing is so amazing and so awesome um, that it's definitely, we got it. We, I just have to have you back. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I have to have you back. <laughs> well, thank you. That's really, really nice. And great. happy to come back. And it, it is such a huge topic and needs to yeah. be broken down in some yeah. ways. So yeah. yeah. Well, once again, thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining us. I'm Coach Tanya here with Christy Harrison, food psych and um, emotional eating support person, <laughs> intuitive eating <laughs> genius. Um, if you're looking for help and support with this, definitely you want to check her out. Um, don't forget to leave us a review 
um, on our show and let us know what you thought. And again, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Christy. Thank you, listeners. Coach Tanya, I cannot wait to um, have you back, Christy, and we will be talking again soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe so that more people can find out about our show. Plus, you don't want to miss any future episodes with the amazing guests and topics we have lined up for you. 